Well, you know what I was thinking? If we have another day like this, we should just have church right out here on the grass, huh? So if you, if you come one of these Sundays and we're all out there, just know that I sort of lost it and uh, you know, just went outside. Well, would you join me in a word of prayer? This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and give thanks in it. Lord God, we praise You this morning for the beauty of yesterday and today. After a long week of rain and drizzle and cold, Lord, You just burst upon us with a beautiful day. And Lord, what a picture that is of Your salvation for the dark storm clouds of the wrath of God were upon us. We were separated from You because of our sin. We were a people who were lost in darkness and cold, dying because of our sins and under the the just judgment of God. And yet, the miracle happened and You sent Your Son into this world like like a burst in the clouds with sunlight shining through. And Lord, everything changed because You came and You dispelled the clouds of Your wrath through Your own sacrifice of Your Son. And so we thank You, God, that we are saved, that there is a new day, that for us in Christ, Your mercies are new every morning, that Your faithfulness is great. And Lord, I thank You that that Your salvation comes just that quickly, that we are saved in an instant, that when salvation comes, it is in a moment, that it doesn't take a long process to actually cross from death to life. There aren't a bunch of rituals or sacraments we have to take. There's not any penance to do. We are simply called to repent and believe in Jesus and be saved. And Lord, in a moment we are brought from death to life. In a moment we are brought from darkness to light. And so we praise You that You are the God who when You save, You save. And Lord, You rescue. And so we come to You as Your redeemed people, not that we are worthy, but because You have done a great work in our lives. And Lord, I pray today that You would continue to put Your hand upon uh, this church and that You would um, bring Your salvation and Your light and Your healing. I know, Lord, there's brothers and sisters who, even though it's bright outside, their personal lives are covered over with difficulties. They're going through anxieties and depressions. There are, uh, un- there's unemployment. There are relational difficulties. There are marriages that are buckling. And Lord, we pray that You would shine through in these situations, that they would have confidence that above the clouds, the same God is reigning over all. The same sun is still shining. And so, Lord, I pray that You would intervene on their behalf, that they would trust in You. I pray especially for brothers and sisters here today who are uh, facing illness, who are facing uh, sickness and disease. And I pray, God, that You would touch them and heal them and encourage them. Lord, we pray for our missionaries around the world who are today under the same sun, laboring in different parts of the world, but proclaiming the same Jesus and worshiping the same Father that we worship. And I pray, Lord, especially for the uh, Bothwells who we support, who are actually here in Boston, who are church planting among the different um, ethnic groups that have immigrated into Boston and they're trying to start churches among them. Lord, we just pray you'd bless their efforts. God, I pray for our church, that our church might be able to plant new churches. Lord, we pray that new congregations would spring forth from this congregation, that You'd show us how and when to do that. And Lord, we pray for our building project here, that in Your time and Your way, Lord, You'd enable us to expand the facility. And Lord, we pray for Your real building project, which is us. We are the living stones. We are the church. And so, God, keep Your work going in us. Continue to drive out sin in our lives. Continue to drive out all those things that would... Keep us from a wholehearted commitment and obedience to You. Lord Jesus, woo us to Yourself, we pray. And now as we open up Your Word, we pray again that the light would shine, that the sun would break through, 
that your word, which is so powerful, would do its work in our lives and our hearts. And so, Lord, use your Holy Spirit to illuminate us, we pray. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we invite any children here, kindergarten to second grade, to be dismissed to Children's Church. Will the rest of you open up your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21. And we are going to be studying verses 5 to 19, which is actually part of a larger section. So uh, I'm going to actually read verses 5 to 38, which is the, the whole text so that you have it in context. And the next three Sundays, we're going to be studying our way through Luke 21, verses 5 to 38. So let me just read the, the whole thing so that you can get the whole context. It's on page 1042 in the Pew Bible. Luke 21, verse 5. Some of his disciples were remarking about the temple, how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, As for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? He replied, Watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name, claiming, I am he, and the time is near. Do not follow them. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay hands on you and persecute you. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors, and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind not to worry beforehand how you will defend yourselves, for I will give you words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. You will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends, and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me, but not a hair of your head will perish. By standing firm, you will gain life. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up, lift up your heads, because your redemption is drawing near. 
He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when these things are happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Be careful, or your hearts will be weighed down with dissipation, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life, and the day will close on you unexpectedly, like a trap. For it will come upon all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always, uh, be always on the watch and pray that you will be able to escape all that is about to happen, and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple, and each evening he went out to spend the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives. And all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. Well, that lengthy section is what scholars typically refer to as the Olivet Discourse. It's what they call it. And they call it the Olivet Discourse because it's a discourse that Jesus gave while he was teaching on the Mount of Olives on the northeastern side of Jerusalem, up on the mountain overlooking Jerusalem and overlooking the temple. And uh, it's an important section because here Jesus talks about the end. The end of the whole story. Uh, this is Jesus' most lengthy uh, treatise and treatment of the end times events that will occur before he returns. And so it's a fascinating passage of Scripture. I mean, who isn't kind of intrigued by prophecies about the end? You know, who here hasn't been, when you're reading a novel, wanted to flip to the last couple pages just to see, does the hero live? How does it turn out? And so every once in a while we're tempted to look at that just to see how the story ends. And so this is kind of fascinating. Here you have Jesus, uh, arguably one of the greatest teachers ever in the world. Uh, even if you're not a Christian, you have to be fascinated by what Jesus would be saying about the end of the world. I mean, isn't that a little bit interesting? And in fact, our fascination with the end times is big business. There are uh, teachers and periodicals and books and movies and, you know, whole things you can get into where people make predictions about the end times. There are, you know, prophecy experts who look at the book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse and the Old Testament and they're looking at world events and trying to figure out how all these things line up. Uh, maybe some of you have heard of the book series, the Left Behind book series. Maybe some of you have read these books. They sold over 60 million copies. Can you believe that? And what, basically what the Left Behind series is, is it takes a certain school of uh, theology, a certain understanding of the end times known as dispensationalism, and it turns it into a fictional account in order to sort of lay out the, the dispensational structure so that people can sort of see how that school of thought operates and puts it in a fictional uh, setting. Uh, in fact, you know, there's even left behind video games. If, you know, so if you're not a reader, you can just turn on your PlayStation and, and you'll learn about the end times, I, I guess, by playing a video game. So it, it's an interesting topic of study. It's, it's fascinating. It's also a very difficult passage of Scripture. I, I think it's safe to say that this is the most difficult teaching of Jesus to interpret and could be one of the most difficult passages in all of the New Testament. Uh, so, you know, why are we studying it then? Well, I guess because it's in Luke 21 and we're preaching through Luke, and so here it comes and we have to face it. So, uh, you know, we just have to realize that there are a number of complex interpretive issues in this passage, and that Bible teachers 
and Bible scholars and Christians who love God and believe this is God's Word come out in different places on how to understand this different, difficult portion of Scripture. And we just have to understand that. And, and so I raise that um, not because I, I lack convictions about this text, but I just want you to sort of know that up front. Uh, you know, at South Shore Baptist Church, we don't divide over our different beliefs about eschatology. In other words, that's not what, what is at the center of our church. At the center of our church is the Bible, the Gospel, and Jesus. And we understand that there's room for, for different disagreement and discussion among Christians on something as difficult as what happens when the world ends. So I would just encourage us all to extend charity to one another as we talk about these different viewpoints and, and the different things in this text and, and try to find what it is Jesus is saying to us. So, uh, with all that said, let's jump into the text. And, and really what we're going to look at today is just the first chunk, verses 5 to 19. And over the next two Sundays, we're going to work our way through this. This is kind of like a mini-series. A mini-series on the end times. And so, verses 5 to 19. And, and in this first section that we're going to study this morning, the main thing that Jesus wants to communicate to us is to realize that there's going to be a delay before the end that there is going to be a period of time between when Jesus is talking in the text and when the end finally comes. And furthermore, there are going to be certain things taking place during this delay that might make it difficult for us to follow Christ, might make us question our faith, might make us wonder what God is doing. And so Jesus wants to inform His disciples that the end is not going to come right away. So let's look at verse 5. So some of the disciples were remarking, about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. So if you can just kind of picture this scene, here's the disciples. They're up to the northeastern side of Jerusalem, up on the Mount of Olives. They're looking down at the temple, which was in the northeastern corner of Jerusalem. And there's this beautiful structure. White marble walls. Uh, Historians tell us it was covered with shiny gold plates. Uh, one historian said that when the sun rose on Jerusalem, on, on the temple in the morning, it shone so brightly it was blinding. It was just this beautiful structure. So here you have a bunch of country farmers and fishermen from Galilee, salt of the earth, regular guys, coming to Jerusalem. And, and the way the temple would have just dominated their vision and, and would have caused them to be filled with awe and wonder at this big building. And so they say, they're sitting there saying, look at that, oh, isn't the temple amazing? Boy, every time I come to Jerusalem, I'm blown away by how beautiful the temple is. And Jesus says, you know, <laughs> verse 6, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Hey guys, this temple, it's going down. It's going to be wiped out. Uh, And of course, this is not the first time Jesus has mentioned this. He actually mentioned this before in chapter 19. Look back at chapter 19, verse 41. Now, this is Palm Sunday in chapter 19. So it's interesting. This section of Scripture before the Passion Narratives in in chapter 22 begins and ends with Jesus pronouncing judgment on the temple and on Jerusalem. And in between, he's teaching in the temple. So the temple is sort of the the theme that runs throughout the section. And look what he says in verse 41 of chapter 19. As he approached Jerusalem, so there he is, it's Palm Sunday, he's riding in on a donkey, they're putting the palm leaves in front of him. And as he saw the city, he wept over it. And said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, 
but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So here and then back in 21, Jesus says, hey, the temple's going to be wiped out. That prophecy came true. 70 A.D., the temple was wiped out. The whole Jerusalem was wiped out. After a lengthy siege, the Romans had been besieging Jerusalem because it had revolted. And in 70 A.D., the Roman general Titus, with a number of Roman legions, breached the northern walls of Jerusalem. The Roman troops poured in, and in a couple days they had taken the city. They slaughtered the people in the city. Those few who were left, they made into slaves. I mean, it was, it was a brutal sack, pillage, looting, burning of Jerusalem. And in their fury, Titus ordered that the whole city be razed. And so after they conquered the city and looted it and pillaged it and burned it, this, the Roman soldiers went around and literally took brick off of brick, stone off of stone, so that the entire city was flattened. Nothing was left. Actually, uh, we, we know from history, the Romans did leave one thing standing. They left a big tower standing so that and people would come along and see Jerusalem all obliterated and they would see that one huge tower and see how strong it used to be and say, wow, that's how strong it was. Boy, aren't the Romans tough because look what they conquered. So anyway, that's what it really happened to Jerusalem. And so this, of course, piques the disciples' interest. And go back to chapter 21, verse 7. Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? Now, something you should know is the Jews in those days, one of their hopes about the end time was that when the Messiah came, the temple would either be destroyed or replaced with a better temple. So here's Jesus, who they believe is the Messiah. He's in Jerusalem, and now he's talking about the temple being destroyed. And so they're all going, boo, 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 end times alert. This must be the end times that we're waiting for. So they want to know two things. They want to know when, verse 7, and they want to know what. When will these things happen? And then what will be the signs or omens or, or things that we'll know that this is all about to take place? And that's where Jesus gives them this teaching. And his basic teaching is, look, I'll tell you when. The when is not yet. It's going to be a while before the end. So look at verse 8. He replied, watch out that you're not deceived, for many will come in my name claiming I am he and the time is near. But that's the point. The time isn't near. There's going to be a delay. So, do not follow them. Or verse 9, When you hear of wars, revolutions, and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first. But what? The end will not come right away. So the first thing about the end times you have to know is that they're a ways off. Uh, it's, it's kind of like you know when you go on the road trip with your kids. Or maybe you, you went on road trips as a kid. And you got this long day ahead of you on the road, like eight or nine hours of driving. And I tell you, you're not half an hour out on the road trip. And the question comes, are we there yet? No. Are we there yet? No. <laughs> Why is it taking so long? It just is. How much longer? Long time. Get, use the coloring book. <laughs> I forgot my coloring book. You forgot your coloring book. Do you know how long this is going to take? No, I don't know how long it's going to take. You know, it's like... Hypothetically, you know, that's how it, it takes place. And so as the disciples, are we there yet? When's it going to be? When's it going to be? Long time. 
In fact, it's so funny, you look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1, which, you know, Acts is the second volume of Luke, so there's Luke and Acts, they go together, two-volume set. And uh, in that story, Jesus has been raised from the dead, he's meeting with his disciples, and the first recorded words out of the disciples' mouth, in Acts chapter 1, verse 6, the first thing they say in Acts is what? They say, Lord, now are you going to restore the kingdom? <laughs> are we there yet? Are we there yet? And Jesus says, hey, it's not for you to know. He says, your job is to preach the gospel. It's another way of saying there's going to be a delay. We have some other things to do first before the end comes. There is going to be this delay. And not only is there going to... Well, so, so, so really, you know, what Jesus is doing is he's explaining to them God's timetable. They, they had it all compressed in their minds, right? So they believed that the coming of the Messiah, destruction of the temple, overthrow of the Romans, the judgment day, the kingdom of God was all going to happen at once. It was like a, you know, like a slinky. It was all pushed together. And Jesus grabs the slinky and he says, no, 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 it's like this. He stretches out the slinky. He says, it's much more like this. There's right now when you guys are asking the question, there's the kingdom of God and then in between are all of these things that are going to happen that you need to be prepared for. And in fact, some of the things that are going to happen may even rattle and shake your faith. For instance, one of the things that's going to happen in this period of delay is that there are going to be people claiming to be the Messiah who aren't. So you look at verse 8. He says, Watch out that you are not deceived. For many will come in my name claiming, I am he and the time is near. Very simple. Do not follow them. If anyone claims, comes claiming to be the Messiah... Don't follow them. Because down through history, there have been different messiahs, different people claiming to be uh, the one bringing the kingdom of God in a special way. Even in Jesus' day, 66 AD, there was a guy named Simon Bar-Giora who was uh, a, a messiah. He claimed to be the messiah. He helped lead the Jewish revolt against the Romans, which culminated in the destruction of Jerusalem. And so here was a messiah, and people followed him. They thought, this must be the guy. And down through the ages, there's always people making these claims. You know, many of you know Reverend Moon, you know, of, of uh, a big figure in the 20th century. 1935, Reverend Moon was a young man, and he was praying on Easter, and he claims that Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus says, you have been selected by God to be the one who will complete my unfinished work on earth. And so he went out, essentially, to be the Messiah figure, on behalf of Jesus. And Jesus says, when people like that make claims like that, don't follow them. It's very simple. Don't do it. Uh, or, you know, when the Jehovah's Witnesses claim that Jesus did return in 1914, just secretly and invisibly, and no one knows it except them, and they're telling us, he says, don't believe them. You know? Look, here's the thing, people. When Jesus returns, you'll all know it. No one's going to have to tell you. You're not going to have to come and hear a sermon on me interpreting whether or not Jesus came back. I won't, I'll be out of a job at that point. You won't need teachers. I, you know, I'll just be able to enjoy the kingdom of God too. Uh, you, you're not going to have to watch the news. When Jesus comes back, we will know it. And you won't have to scratch your head saying, I wonder if this is his coming or not. You'll know, as we'll see next week. It'll be very clear to everybody. And so, as we wait, as, as the period of delay is stretched out, it can be so tempting to lose heart 
and to want Jesus to come and to want to believe that the end is here. And so when some persuasive, charismatic, vibrant person stands up and begins claiming to be the Messiah and claiming that the end is coming, don't get sucked into it because you're longing for that to be true. Just don't follow them because there's going to be false messiahs. Something else that's going to happen in this interim period that could shake our faith is that there's going to be chaos in the world. Look at verse 8, or verse 9. When you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. These things must happen first, but the end will not come right away. Verse 10, then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, famines, and pestilences in various places, and fearful events and great signs from heaven. And so in this interim period, you know, there's going to be wars and diseases and earthquakes. And, and there, you're going to be tempted to think the world's falling apart. I mean, didn't you ever feel that way sometimes? You're watching the news. You see all the stuff that's happening in the world. We hear about the genocide that's taking place in Darfur. Or we think about the political oppression and, and tumult that's happening in former Soviet uh, countries as they still are trying to work out uh, democracy in those countries. Or we, we hear about the, the continual tensions between the Middle East and the Western nations. And we look at it and we say, nothing's ever going to fix this. The world is falling apart. And we say, it must be the end of the world. It has to be. And we begin to freak out. And this has to be the end. This has, it can't get any worse than this. Uh, unfortunately, it can. And at the end, it probably will. That's the scary thing. So it can get worse. But, you know, we're trying to, I remember when 9-11 happened, you know, we all remember where we were. I also remember the day after it happened, just driving around. And the thing that I remember is just feeling like everything was surreal. Feeling like, like, like the whole world had changed and nothing was safe and everything was, was up for grabs. And just having this general, I don't know, diffused unsettledness in my spirit, it, it, it freaked me out. And, you know, when you go through a personal life tragedy or a big tragedy or some huge calamity befalls a nation, it unsettles us and we begin to be terrified. And we think perhaps the end is coming and, and it makes us want to react or do dramatic things. But what does Jesus say? He says, when you hear of wars and revolutions, do not be frightened. Don't be afraid. This is what is part of this in-between time. In uh, the other Gospels, uh, Jesus calls them the beginning of the birth pangs. You know, there's a labor process. Understand that this is all part of it. In fact, look what he says in verse 9. This is difficult to understand. He says, these things must happen first. But the end will not come right away. And so somehow in God's plan, the great tragedies and events and chaos of this world are being worked out by God for His purposes. And you say, how can that possibly be? And my answer is, I don't know. I don't, ha I don't know God's ways. His ways are so great and complex. I cannot explain to you the ways of God's providence and sovereignty. But I do know this. When chaos happens, either in my life or in the world, the one thing that's worse than chaos is believing that there's chaos without a God who's sovereign over it. That's worse. I mean... I, the choice between there's chaos and there's, but I believe that God is wise beyond my comprehension and good and has a great plan, that's easier to take on faith than to say there's chaos in the world and you know what, God is out of control. He can't even help it. And God's going, I don't know, this is beyond my control. It's just the free will of people and I can't control anything. That's really terrifying to me. 
And so, so I, I believe that God, and here he says it, these things must happen. So God has a plan. I don't understand it. Sometimes you even want to get mad at God for the things that happen. And you know what? He can handle that. <laughs> get mad at him. He might talk back to you. Be prepared. God may push back against our anger, but you know, he can handle our doubts and our questions. And, and he is God. And, and so we need to talk to him and tell God that we're confused and, and let his words comfort us. Do not be frightened. These things must happen first. And so don't let these things throw you in a tizzy. The end of the world is not here yet. God is still working out his plan. But there's a third thing that happens during this in-between period that could potentially uh, rock our faith or make us doubt what God is doing. Uh, And that is in verse 12, that Christians will experience persecution. That in this in-between period, Christians will suffer for their faith. And speaking of suffering, feel free to open the windows if you'd like. If anyone wants to get up and open windows and you feel hot, go ahead. Uh, Verse 12, but before all this, he says, they will lay hands on you and what? Persecute you. That's what's going to happen, guys. I'm warning you ahead of time, Jesus is saying. They will deliver you to synagogues and prisons and you'll be brought before kings and governors and all on account of my name. This will result in your being witnesses to them. But make up your mind ahead of time not to worry about how, uh, before and how you'll defend yourselves for I'll give you the words and wisdom that none of your adversaries will be able to resist or contradict. Here we go, verse 16. You'll be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives and friends and they will put some of you to death. All men will hate you because of me. Now, that that phrase all men there, I don't take to mean every single human being on earth will hate every single Christian. I take that to mean all kinds of people. Especially given verse 16 where he's talking about parents, brothers, relatives. All different categories of people. It's going to come from all directions. You're going to experience rejection and persecution as Christians. And so Jesus is telling us, here's the third thing we're going to experience in this in-between time is rejection and persecution. Just as Jesus was persecuted and rejected for His obedience to the Father. So if we're going to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, don't be shocked if we go through the same things that Jesus experienced as well. We go through tribulation. And maybe since we're talking about the end times here, I I should make a comment about this idea of tribulation. Because if, if you sort of read prophetic end times literature and people who write about these things. This is kind of a buzzword, right? Tribulation. Isn't one of the uh, left behind books called Tribulation Force or something like that? And so when you talk to people today in America who are into these things about tribulation, they often define it as a future period. They say, well, you know, there's the tribulation. And the question is, are Christians going to go through the tribulation or not? And it drives me crazy. Because when you look at the word tribulation in Greek in the New Testament, and you look at all the times the New Testament writers talk about tribulation in terms of persecution, religious persecution, it's always in the present. They didn't talk about some future seven-year period. It was going on now. So it's like, yeah, I believe in the tribulation. It started in the first century and is going on now. And will continue on because Christians are going through tribulation. You know, only in America, where we have the kinds of incredible religious liberties that we have, and we have the incredible material comforts that we have, would we concoct a theology that says the tribulation is something in the future? And guess what? We don't even have to go through it. We're going to get sucked out of it. Whoop, isn't that convenient? <laughs> of course, Jesus didn't get sucked out of it, but somehow we're going to get sucked out of it. I mean, where does this come from? 
The common teaching of the New Testament is the church goes through persecution and will until the second coming of Christ. This is, this is what Christ did and we follow in the footsteps of Christ. And so I think the tribulation is something that's going on now and will continue to go on and so that's you know, my take on that and you can disagree with that but that's what I see in the New Testament. And so we have to be prepared for it. And sure enough, when you look at church history, you see the church has been in tribulation all over the centuries. It starts in the book of Acts. Peter and John are put in prison. And uh, Stephen is stoned. He's martyred for his faith. And we see that the Apostle Paul is arrested and beaten and arrested again and almost stoned to death. And you know he goes through persecution. Uh, according to church tradition, every one of the twelve apostles except for John died a violent martyr's death. When you look at the Christians in the first couple centuries, there were at times be these local and sometimes empire-wide persecutions against the Christians in Rome. Uh, Nero, Emperor Nero in 64 AD, unleashed a fierce persecution against the church. It said that he would tie Christians to posts, douse them in oil, and light them on fire, and that would be how he lit the streets at night of Rome. It was just horrible things. And you go into the Middle Ages and any time a man would stand up and begin to teach the Bible and to begin to proclaim that salvation is through faith in Christ alone, persecution would come against that person. Sometimes from the church. I think of uh, John Huss. He was a, a, a Christian leader. He was a priest in the, the early uh, 15th century, a follower of the writings of John Wycliffe. And John Huss began to you know, teach the Bible to the people in their language and teach what the Scriptures say, and began to teach that salvation is through faith in Christ alone, and not through sacraments and rituals, and not through the, the rituals of the church, but it's through simply fit, trusting in Christ. And he was burned at the stake. And Martin Luther lived like a fugitive, and he was arrested, and he had to hide out so he wouldn't be arrested and put on trial and killed. And, and you go into the, the 20th century, and those uh, who study religious persecution and the history of religious persecution tell us that they estimate there have been more martyrdoms for Christ in the 20th century than in the previous 19 combined. So as the Gospel has exploded, especially in the 20th century with world missions, so persecution has exploded. Which is just the pattern in Acts, right? The book of Acts is about the Gospel going out and persecution happening. Which is just the story of Jesus, isn't it? That as Jesus' ministry went out, so persecution came against Him. And so, you know, it's very tough to be a Christian in a lot of places in the world today. Very difficult to be a Christian in Iran or North Korea, Saudi Arabia. If you're even thinking about converting, you're thinking about losing your life. The death penalty is an official law against anyone who converts from Islam to another faith. I got an email just this week, you know, coincidentally, this week as I'm writing this sermon from one of our missionaries who's serving in the Middle East. And this missionary said that, uh, to pray for the Christians in that country who are a small group, and a lot of them know each other because it's such a small group. He said because three Christians who were working on Bible publication were murdered, uh, you know, all executed. And so, I, you know, I was thinking about that. I'm like, okay, right? Like, I'm griping all week because it's rainy. But imagine if, imagine if I knew that any time this week I might be murdered because I was a Christian. You think about that. Would you still go to church if you knew it might cost you your life? Would you be here? Or would you be like, forget that. I'll, 
I'll just uh, listen to sermons online or, you know, I'll just read books secretly. You know, would you publicly proclaim yourself to be a Christian if you knew that you might, as a result, not get work anywhere in your village or town because you would be blacklisted as a Christian? If you knew you might be in prison, would I, would I be a preacher? You know, often it's pastors who are the ones who get capped first in these countries. Would I be willing to, to stand up for Christ? You know? Oh, wow. It really causes you to, to think about these things. And whenever we stand up for Christ, we're going to experience persecution. You know, even in America, I think, even though, praise God, we live in a free country where we don't have to worry about official government agencies harassing us for our faith in, in that kind of way. But, you know, there's still persecution here. And we start talking about your faith at a, a social party, at a soiree, you know, at a Hingham social cocktail hour. Start talking about your faith. See what happens. There's ostracism. There's rejection. Uh, we, we get pushed to the side. We get labeled. We get pushed out of certain social circles, sometimes by some people. Uh, some of you have maybe had the experience of being in a high school classroom or a college classroom where there was a professor or a teacher who was particularly hostile to Christianity and just used their platform as the teacher to blast Christians in the class. And that's very difficult to sit through and listen to from somebody you know, who's more well-educated. And you're like, I know I disagree with them, but how can I stand up and argue against this person without just looking like a fool in front of the whole class? Some of us, like it says in verse 16, will be betrayed even by parents, brothers, relatives, and friends. And you know, some of us even here have experienced a high social cost in our own families for our faith. There are some of you who, when you started to follow Christ seriously, that's when you started getting flack from your family. <laughs> it's like, it's so funny because when you used to drink and swear and be a nasty person, they weren't mad at you. But now that you become a Christian, they're like freaked out that you're a Christian. <laughs> like, ah! Come back, come back to the church we used to go to. It's like, what do you mean? I didn't get anything out of the church and you always tell me how much you hate it. Why should we go there? You know, well, uh, just don't go to that other church. And, and even coming to this church you face you face resistance and hostility or, or going to a Bible study that you go to and, and there's social ostracism from your family. And, and so I just want to, to just acknowledge that and say, you know, that's what Christ predicted would happen. Which raises a final question and I'll sort of wrap it up with this question. The disciples asked when and what. When will this happen? What will be the signs? I want to ask a third question, which is why? Why is God doing it this way? Why is there a delay? Why allow false teachers to run around? Why allow tragedies and disasters to continue in the world and wars and, in, and insurrections? And most importantly, why allow your people, O oh Lord, to suffer? Why allow the people who love you with all their heart and just want to worship you, why allow them to be imprisoned and... Um, you know, martyred and beaten and lose their jobs. Why would you allow that, God? And even in the small ways that we experience persecution in our country, you know, why would you allow this to happen? And I suppose there's many answers to that question, but I just want to focus the one on this text. It's in verse 13, and the basic answer is, it is through our suffering for Christ that God is bringing the gospel of salvation to the world. That it is through persecution and as we pour out our lives for Jesus that His Gospel is going forward. Look at verse 13. This will result. What will result? 
the persecutions that he talked about in verse 12 will result in what? Your being witnesses to them. And so God uses it for us to be witnesses. He'll even give us the words. Verse 14, make up your minds not to worry about what you're, how you're going to defend yourselves. Verse 15, I will give you words and wisdom. Haven't you had that experience of when you've been put on the spot about your faith and you just start talking? And you start saying things you didn't even know you knew? You start quoting Bible verses you didn't even know you had learned? And you're just like, about Christianity, like, well, this is what I believe, and all these words come to you, and then the conversation's over, you're like, what just happened to me? What, what was I saying? And, you know, we, we've had these, many Christians have shared that. I've had that experience where God gives you words, and in the moment, He helps you to know what it is you need to say in that situation. And so that's why God allows us to go through suffering, is so that we can be a witness. That's why Stephen, that wonderful leader in the early church, was stoned to death. Why? So he could witness before the authorities and, and, and share the gospel of Christ. You know, you look at the story of the stoning of Stephen in the book of Acts. Just a little bit of the story is about his martyrdom. Most of the story is his sermon that he preached before his martyrdom. Because that's the point. He witnessed for Christ, and even though it cost him his life. The Apostle Paul was not afraid to be arrested. The Apostle Paul said, I appeal to Caesar. I want to go to Rome and defend my case. And they said, alright, you appeal to Caesar. To Caesar you shall go. And Paul went to Rome. Why? He wasn't trying to get out of jail. He was trying to witness before Christ. And so, presumably, the, the, gospel, the book of Acts ends before Paul gets to stand before Caesar. But presumably he did. And so, Emperor Nero heard the gospel, most likely, from the lips of the Apostle Paul. Isn't that amazing? And perhaps that's when Paul lost his life and was martyred, which we only know about from church tradition and history. And so, God uses these moments of persecution and rejection so that we can be witnesses. So when you're experiencing that kind of rejection, and you wonder, why is it that my, my family is treating me this way, or I have this boss at work who's so nasty, or this teacher who's cruel to me because of my faith, don't freak out, don't get discouraged, don't lose heart. Realize God has you right where you need to be to proclaim the gospel. Because whenever the church is persecuted, that's when the gospel seems to flourish and expand in breathtaking ways. The church persecuted has always been the church triumphant. And should we be surprised? Because isn't that what Jesus did? Wasn't our Savior's life poured out all through Jesus' life, he faced rejection, opposition. At every turn, he was opposed and argued with and debated and plotted against until finally he came to Jerusalem and all those plots reached their fruition and he was arrested unjustly and he was brought before a phony court and they accused him unjustly and they tortured him unjustly. And then finally, he stood before Pilate and Pilate said, hey look, I find no fault in this guy. And yet they claimed, crucify Him. And so even though He was publicly exonerated, Jesus endured the death penalty and was tortured and killed for, for, his, for who He was and, and for God's purposes. And yet, through that great injustice and persecution, what happened? Salvation for us. I'm saved. I'm forgiven. God's anger against me has been removed because Jesus died in my place. And so it is God's strange sovereignty that uses the suffering of His saints for the advance of His kingdom. So do not be discouraged when you have to suffer for Christ. Just know that God is at work. And so the weakness of God is stronger than the strength of men. The foolishness of God 
is wiser than the wisdom of men. That God is building His kingdom through weakness, suffering, persecution. And it's as we as Christians pour our lives out foolishly for others who hate us that somehow God is winning the day and His kingdom is advancing in the world. I want to end with a story. I know it's new, but I just got to tell you the story. Actually, I left, I left it on here on the front pew. It's, it's, a, it's my favorite martyrdom story. I know that sounds kind of warped, doesn't it? Um, that I have a bunch of martyrdom stories I like, and this is my favorite. But uh, seriously, if, if you have a chance, here's a book you should order and read. Fox's Book of Martyrs. Oh, that'll encourage you, I'll tell you. So anyway, this is one of my favorite martyrdom stories. It's, it's the story of the martyrdom of Polycarp. It's the early Christian, earliest Christian martyrdom we have recorded outside of the New Testament. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. This is about the 2nd century A.D. And uh, Polycarp uh, was in what is today Turkey or Asia Minor, we called it back then. And uh, he, he was a bishop then and, and he was arrested for his faith because he wouldn't swear fealty to Caesar. That was the test back then. Will you acknowledge that Caesar is Lord? And the Christians wouldn't acknowledge Caesar is Lord. And so all the Romans thought the Christians were atheists because they wouldn't worship the Roman gods. And the Christians thought the Romans were atheists because they didn't worship the true God. And so this, this funny thing that went back and forth. So anyway, Polycarp was finally arrested. He was brought into the gladiatorial arena where he was being tried. It says, when finally Polycarp was brought up, there was a great tumult on hearing that he had been arrested. Therefore, when he was brought before the proconsul, the proconsul asked Polycarp if he were indeed Polycarp. And when he confessed that he was, the, the proconsul tried to persuade him to deny the faith, saying... Have respect to your age. He was an old man at this point. And other things that customarily follow this, such as swear by the fortunes of Caesar, change your mind and say away with the atheists. He wanted Polycarp to call the Christians atheists. I love it. But Polycarp looked with earnest face at the whole crowd of lawless heathen in the arena and motioned to them with his hand. Then groaning and looking up to heaven, he said, away with the atheists. But the pro-council was insistent. He said, take the oath and I'll release you. Curse Christ. Polycarp said, 86 years I have served him. He never did me any wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? And upon hearing uh, this, he persisted still saying, swear by the fortune of Caesar. And Polycarp answered, if you vainly suppose that I shall swear by the fortune of Caesar as you say and pretend that you do not know who I uh, that I do not know what I who I am listen plainly I am a Christian but if you desire to learn the teaching of Christianity appoint a day and give me a hearing but the proconsul said I have wild beasts I shall throw you to them if you do not change your mind Polycarp said call them for repentance among Christians from better to worse is not permitted but it is noble to change from what is evil to what is righteous and again the proconsul said to him, I shall have you consumed with fire if you despise the wild beasts. And Polycarp said, The fire you threaten burns but an hour and is quenched after a little. But you do not know the fire of the coming judgment and everlasting punishment that is laid up for the impious. But why do you delay? Come, do what you will. And so they chained him to a post and they burned him at the stake. It's just such an inspiration to think, you know, that God wants us not to be wimpy, not to let our New England reservedness hold us back from speaking the name of Jesus when we need to speak it. You know, don't be a wimp for Jesus. doesn't mean we have to be rude or obnoxious or pushy. 
But man, let's not be wimps for Jesus. You say, yeah, but if I say that, people might not like me. Right. That's the point. (laughs) Why, Why do we care what people think of us? Why are we trying to be liked by a world that hates our Savior? How does that make any sense? Why do I need the approval of a world that hates my Savior? I just need to please my Savior. And so without being rude, without being offensive and obnoxious, let us boldly and lovingly and humbly, yet boldly proclaim our love for Christ. Know that persecution may come, and if so, so be it. May we have the courage of a polycarp and and the courage of the martyrs and the saints today who are suffering to stand firm for Jesus. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we worship and praise You because You are our Savior. You are not afraid to do what was necessary to save us. We thank You, Jesus, that You weren't a wimp, but that You were manly, that You were brave, that You were obedient, and that You courageously faced the cross and faced Your sufferings. And we pray, Jesus, that You would make us bold servants for You who would not be afraid to speak Your name even if it means that we will be ostracized or rejected or even worse. And so, Lord Jesus, make us a faithful church, we pray. I pray that we would stand for You in this culture and that You would give us opportunities even this week to speak Your name and not be afraid if that means that there are negative consequences because we know that a lot of times there are positive consequences. And a lot of times when we speak Your name boldly, someone may reject us, but someone else is listening who will come to us later and want to hear more about your greatness. And we might be able to share the love and forgiveness and salvation we found in you, Jesus. So, Lord, make us your witnesses this week. We pray this in your name. Amen. Would you open your hymnals to hymn number 151? And let us close with this great hymn of confidence in God's power. Hymn number 151. Would you stand? <clears throat>